So if you had no information, no identification, how could you prove who you are if somebody asked you, who are you? I remember I was with some guy friends after college, and we uh, all left and went to the Caymans. While we were there, um, one of my friends, Jeremy, lost all of his information. Matter of fact, we were on the other side of the island. He lost everything, lost his passport, his driver's license, all his credit cards. So then we had to go back to the hotel, and he was trying to explain who he was. He was trying to prove who he was. That was before we had smartphones. And he, he was having a difficult time. And I remember how difficult it was for him to simply prove who he was. I, I know sometimes I, I go to a hotel. Maybe you've had this experience. I, I go into a hotel and then I leave to go get some ice or get a paper or something. I come back and I go, shoot, I left my key in there with my wallet. And so I go down to the front desk and I go, I'm, hey, I'm in room 233. Can you let me in? And then I have to go through this process of somehow trying to prove who I am without any identification. They'll say, do you have your wallet? No. you have any other forms of identification? I got nothing. Uh, I got this. No, I don't even have a card. I got, I got nothing, but it's my room up there. And we have to prove who we are. Well, that's what the resurrection does with Jesus Christ. It proves who he is. It proves what he said and what he did and his claim to be the Messiah, to be God in the flesh. And so I want you to think about that for, for a few moments as we go through this process. Now, some may say, and this is not an apologetic sermon, often on Easter I will give uh, a dozen or 15 different reasons we can know the resurrection is true, but let me just give you three real quick as we begin here. The first one is the tomb was empty. There was never anybody discovered or found, even though there was somewhere between a 3,000 and 5,000 pound rock that was moved in front and was sealed by the Roman government and guards were placed there. Even because of all that, there was never anybody that could produce a body. The tomb was simply empty on the third day and no one could explain it. You realize Christianity could have been stomped out immediately if somebody would have just shown the body of Christ, but they never found it because he is risen. Number two, the disciples. The disciples and the followers of Jesus and how they were completely and radically transformed from individuals who were hiding away from the law and the authorities to those who would go boldly and proclaim their faith. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't just the 12. There were multiple disciples. There were multiple people. Number three, not only the tomb, not only the followers of Christ, but the eyewitness accounts. The eyewitness accounts. The Bible says that there's over, there were over 500 eyewitness accounts. Now, to give you an idea of how many that would be, if we had each one of those individuals come up today and stand here and give a 15-minute testimony about what they saw, what they saw when they saw Jesus, what occurred, and they just went 15 minutes, if we did that for 500 people, you know what would happen? They would take this whole morning, this whole night, tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, Thursday night, and sometime late Thursday night, early Friday morning, they would finish That's how long it would take for 500 testimonies to be shared at just 15 minutes apiece of those who saw, who claimed to have seen Jesus. Those are pretty good odds. If you did that in court, that would be pretty solid proof. So as we consider that, I want us to also consider the fact 
that the resurrection is the hallmark event of not only Christianity, but of history. And we can believe Jesus' claims because he is risen. Now, I want to give you two stories of people who have come to that place where they didn't know Christ, they didn't have the knowledge or the information, and they began to learn, and they passed from death to life. That's the gospel right there, that we're all dead in our sin. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. But Christ was good enough on our behalf that if we transfer our trust from our own efforts and deeds to what Christ has done, then we are forgiven. And that righteousness of Christ is applied to us as God Almighty sees us. And that's exactly what happened to these individuals. First, I want to show you a picture of Mark and C.J. Wise. As a matter of fact, Mark was here in the earlier service. And Mark had just a little bit of experience in church when he was a small child. But then as he grew older, uh, he he didn't go at all, didn't have a faith, and really didn't practice anything. And as he uh, was an adult, he got married, and uh, they had children. And his wife said, you know, we need to teach our kids some kind of faith. They need to, we need to take them to some type of church and just expose them to Christianity and expose them to faith. So he said, well, we'll do that. And he waited a couple of years, and then they moved over here close to the church, and he said, you know what, all right. His wife was still asking, we'll go. So they came, and they came a couple of times. They met some folks. They began to ask questions. Mark began to listen. CJ began to listen. And soon um, we were talking about next step. Right now we're talking about next door, inviting our neighbors to come to church and sharing the gospel with them. But we were talking about the next step. And it might be to believe, it might be to belong, it might be become, or it might be beyond. And for him, it was to believe. And so he came to our, what we called starting point back then, but now it's called Membership Matters, where we share all of our theology and what we believe and how we practice it. And so they, they came, and while they were there, Matt Bird sat down and went through the gospel, and Mark and then C.J. later accepted Christ, and they were baptized just a couple of months ago. Let me tell you another great story. This is Sarah. Uh, Masood right here. And Sarah's father was uh, Muslim, but she said, I pretty much grew up with no faith. I didn't really grow up other than an occasional holiday going to any type of worship or any kind of service. And so she goes, I just really didn't feel like I had one. And she goes, I really never cared till 9-11 happened. And I was in my latter years of, of high school. And I remember it shaking me. And some people were praying and some people were talking. I just realized I, I don't have anything to hold on to. I if there is a God, I don't know who he is. I don't know how to know him. And so she began to ask questions, and she discovered, she goes, well, I'm not a Christian, and I'm not a Muslim. So I guess the Unitarian, I hear that's kind of just for everybody. So that's where she started going. And she went there a few times, but she said, you know, I just never could anchor, and there was never anything that I grasped that really seemed to make a difference. It, it didn't help me necessarily to know who God was any, any better. And so I just kind of dropped off and that thought was still in my head that one day I, I, I want to know who God is. I, I want to have a relationship with him. <clears throat> and then she met a guy who brought her to church here. <clears throat> and they started coming. And she started listening and started hearing the gospel and hearing scripture. She decided to, to join a group. And she, she became a part of a group. And she began to listen. And she got to meet a lot of people who were believers in Christ Jesus. And she recognized, you know, they're, they're, they have that anchor. They have that faith that I am lacking so Sarah and I talked, along with the women's minister, we talked a little bit and went through the gospel with her. She wasn't quite ready, but just a couple of months ago she came in and she said, you know what, 
I, I think I might be ready. So we went through the gospel again, and she prayed to receive Christ, and she'll be baptized next month. She passed from death, not knowing Christ, to life in Jesus Christ. And now she's married to that same guy that brought her to church, and they're an active part of our church. Great story of how Sarah came to know the risen and resurrected Lord. The resurrection, it's proof of who Jesus is. And if you have your Bibles, I want us to look at the story of the resurrection. We're going to look at Luke's account. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, in the first passage of Luke, in the first section of Luke, we see that it is the women who encounter Jesus. They are the first to see Jesus in his risen and resurrected status. They are the first to give testimony of Christ Jesus. And you might say, well, why is that important? Because in that day, women didn't have any rights. They, didn't, they couldn't vote. Their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law. And so they were marginalized tremendously in that society. And we don't see any other writers in antiquity when they're trying to, to make their case for their point, for their hero or their follower, or their, their leader, they never use women. But the Bible does. You know why? Because number one, uh, if it was not if I was going to make up a story, I would never do it. But because it is true and because Jesus is about breaking all the boundaries of cultural norms which marginalize anyone. And so Jesus, what, who does he pick? Who does he choose? chooses to identify himself with or to reveal himself first? The women. We see that happening in the beginning verses of chapter 24. And then as we go on into the afternoon, there are a couple of his followers on the Emmaus Road, and they're talking about what has happened and what has transpired. And we thought he was the Messiah. And then Jesus appears before them and before Peter. And he explains who he is, and he opens, up, up, he opens their eyes to the scriptures. And then we come into the evening, and here are the rest of the disciples gathered in their hiding. They've been hiding out, and Jesus comes, and this is where we pick up right here, beginning in verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus' appearance, as the other followers had told him, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Shalom, peace to you. Everything is great. All is well. But they were startled and frightened because they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it's myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. You see that I have. Now, why did the disciples think he was a spirit? Why didn't they think he was flesh and bone, that he had been resurrected. Why do they think that? Well, you have to understand the culture in that day and age. It's much like the culture today here in our area. The culture at that time was heavily influenced by a guy named Socrates, who had a famous pupil named, you can say it, thank you, young lady. Uh, Thank you for going to school. They're very good. Wherever she goes to school, identify that. Now, Plato, then then Plato had a student named, all right, here's the hard one, and Aristotle had a famous pupil named Alexander the Great. The children, listen, Jesus said, suffer not the little children to come to me. (laughs) All right, Socrates. So 
the Socratic, what Socrates believed, and he taught Plato, and he taught Aristotle, who taught Alexander Great, who taught the, who conquered the known world, put the Greek system in place where the Greek language and Greek commerce and Greek philosophy is what is pervasive all over the world at this point. That's the system that's being used. That's the philosophy that's being taught. And what did Socrates believe that he taught to all, all those who had come after him? This, that once the body died, the spirit was free. It was free to roam around and do as it pleased. So people often thought they saw spirits. It's what Socrates taught. It's what Plato taught. It's what Aristotle taught. It's what Alexander the Great believed. And so it was a very prevalent and common theme that that's what happened. When the body died, then the spirit was released. And so a lot of people would think that. People still think that today. And the Bible says Jesus is letting them know, I am not a spirit. I am flesh. I am blood. And when he had said this, he showed his hands and his feet. And then it says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Now, why did he do that? Was he promoting Friday fish day? Well, why was he doing this? I'll tell you why I did it, because there's one thing that everybody believed universally about spirits that they didn't eat. Not only did they have flesh and bone, but they weren't going around looking for something to eat. They didn't have to worry about that. And Jesus is proving, look, this is me. I am real. It's not just in spirit. I'm here in body and in spirit. And then the Bible says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms should be fulfilled. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, in the Torah, there were prophecies about Christ. We know that the one particular prophecy was given to Abraham. It said, Abraham, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. I bet you they wondered, how is that happening? How is that ever going to happen through your seed? How are all the nations going to be blessed? I understand as Jews, but how would all nations be blessed? But now Jesus is opening their eyes. He's giving them revelation. And now the Old Testament is making sense. The prophets, the scriptures that prophesied the Messiah who would come. Now it makes sense. And the Psalms that prophesied about who the Messiah be and what he would experience, now it begins to make sense. And so we go on to the next verse here in 45, and it said, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's all making sense now. And he said to them, thus it is written, another prophecy from Psalm 16, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to what? To all the nations. Remember the promise I told you about that was made to Abraham, that through you all nations will be blessed through your seed? Here is Jesus from the seed of Abraham, who's coming and giving his life, who's sacrificing himself on behalf of humanity, and then giving forgiveness, giving right relationship before God Almighty, that all, not just the Jews, that all might be blessed. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So we see that the resurrection is a game-changing event. Just like the Declaration of Independence when that was signed and we became an independent nation. That was a game changer. When Pearl Harbor happened and uh, we were attacked at Pearl Harbor, a, a nation that was trying desperately not to be in the war entered into World War II. 
And eventually we see the end of the war. 9-11, that was a game-changing event. It changed the way we do travel. I remember I used to walk in the airport and walk right up the gate and tell my loved ones goodbye or be there to greet. I don't do that anymore. Now we have this process of, uh, of pretty much extensive um, research that's done, and we have that, that it's also that we're checked in multiple ways before we travel, and we think about it before we travel. It's changed the way that we live. But nothing changed humanity like the resurrection. There was no Christianity before the resurrection. It didn't exist. And so it went from a couple of women to a couple of followers to a few more. And remember, these people had been hiding out, and it spread rapidly till most of the known world was able to hear the gospel. And we saw thousands and thousands. And since that time, billions of people have come to call him Savior and Lord. It's certainly a game-changing event. And it answered the question, is this all that there is in life? No, if God is real and Jesus Christ, his son, has come and provided salvation, this is not all there is. There's much more still to come. And God can be known. He's not uh, just an individual who left the earth and created creation and then departed. No, he sent his son so that we might know him, that we might have relationship with him. And it means that Jesus is more than just a good person. Hey, if you rose from the dead, that's not about your goodness, but no one's ever done that other than the ones that Jesus has, has raised from the dead. Here's Jesus rising from the dead and then proclaiming that I am the resurrection and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. He makes a big, audacious, exclusive claim. And you don't say that. If somebody today stood up here and said, I'm Jesus Christ, follow me. What would we think? We'd think he's a nut job. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. We think they're crazy or they're lying. And that's exactly what the same decision we have to make with Christ. He's who he said he was or he's a liar or something worse but we know because of the resurrection that he is who he claimed to be, the risen and resurrected Christ. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus matters because the resurrection is the key to understanding Christianity. It's the key to understanding our faith and, our, and as we look at the scriptures. Think about this. Number one, one of the reasons that we know that this is important and that the resurrection helps us to understand is that we look and we see this. We see the disciples' behavior. We mentioned a while ago how they were, they were timid and they were afraid and they were hiding. They were under fear that they would be arrested. But all of a sudden, that something transformed. And they come out and they begin to speak boldly. And then the apostle Paul, whose job was to exterminate Christianity, he has a 180. And now is he no longer seeking to destroy and seeking to arrest and to kill. He's proclaiming this news because he has experience on the Damascus road with the risen and resurrected Lord. What would transform them into a point to where they were hiding or whether they're seeking to discredit Christianity, where they can cleanly transform and they're willing to give their life as a martyr for the faith. What makes you do that? A lie? 
a hoax. I don't think you would die for it. Yet they were willing to die for their faith. Number two, the resurrection also is the key, and it also gives us insight as we recognize the Scripture, as we think about the prophecies, the prophecies of Scripture. Think about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is uh, one of the prophecies, one of the best uh, list of prophecies, chapters of prophecies in all the Scripture about Jesus Christ and about the Messiah who would come. What's interesting, in the first half of Isaiah 53, it talks about a victorious king who will come and who will rule, and that's certainly what the Jews wanted. They were thinking about that first half, the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to overthrow the Roman oppression and we're going to be the rulers around here after this point. And Jew, uh, Judaism will reign supreme. And so that's what they were anticipating. But then there's the second half of Isaiah chapter 53. And what it talks about is a suffering servant. Matter of fact, the first half of the book of Isaiah talks about the victorious kingdom. Excuse me, the first half of the book. And the second half talks about a suffering servant. A suffering servant, one who would suffer. What do you do with that? Well, some Jews said, well, there must be two messiahs. There must be the militaristic one, and then there's the one that will come and kind of encourage and pastor us. There must be two messiahs coming, but they were all excited about the first one. Or they just didn't even know what to do with that second half. Well, Jesus opens their eyes, and we see the suffering serpent who came and suffered on our behalf, who took his sins upon him, that he who knew no sin might become sin, might become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And now, as Jesus is explaining that, it makes sense. Or Jeremiah 31, where God says, You will no longer be under the covenant of law, but a new covenant I will give you, and I will write my law upon your hearts. There'll be a new covenant. What's, when's the new covenant coming? How's that going to work? Oh, through Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he now offers us a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way to know God in person and have our sins forgiven. The resurrection makes those things make sense. And then number three, the resurrection is the hope of all those who follow Christ. All those who follow Christ. Uh, what it means is that when we breathe our last breath, that that's not the end. I mentioned to you, a lot of people believe that. A lot of people believe that you just breathe your last breath and that's the end of it. You just kind of turn to dust and there's nothing else. You're just dust in the wind only for a moment, then the moment's gone. I can't hang on. I love that song, but it's kind of depressing if that's all that you believe there is. Or maybe like a lot in our culture today and some religions believe that it's just a circle that, you know, you, you die, you go into ground, you become dirt, and that dirt produces soil, and that soil produces plants, and those plants are eaten by animals, and we eat animals, and it's just a big circle, and you never really cease to exist. You're just part of the circle of life going around and around. I'm not too excited about that. That's not doing it for me. I don't know about you. Is that the solace when your loved one's dying? Well, now you've got to be a part of the circle. No, that's not encouraging. If that's all we believe, then we ought to really fear death. We ought to really be afraid because there's nothing more. This is all there is. But Jesus coming back and returning from death. And Jesus telling us in John 14, 14, chapter 14 that where I am, you may also be. And as we see the scripture that promises not just a spiritual resurrection, but a physical bodily resurrection as well. It's a spirit and body that our bodies and our spirits will be united one day. 
And it's not this body right here, the one that hurts and aches and that we always wish would lose weight and not tall enough or whatever it is, insecurities, loneliness, depression, discouragement. There's all these things. No, all that's gone. Now it's the perfected you. It's the best more than you could ever imagine. You you take your best day and your best health in life, multiply it by a thousand, and Scripture teaches that our most righteous dreams will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. There is a day coming for the believer that's better than one we ever hoped or imagined, and we will be with those who've gone before us who love and call him Lord, and we will be in the likeness of the image of Christ, one who came and who was so marvelous. I think one of the reasons they couldn't recognize him is he was so beautiful. He was so marvelous. He was so perfected, not the rugged and the hurt. Jesus that had been nailed to a cross, not the one that had to eat and had to drink, not the one that had to suffer, but one that was so perfected that it wasn't almost even recognizable till somebody pointed it out, till he pointed it out. And that's what Christ promises for the believer in Christ Jesus. One day you will dwell with him and there is no sorrow. There are no tears. There are no loneliness. There is no lack of self-esteem for we are one in Christ. And it's not that we're running around with a harp and walking around just singing from a hymnal. Man, we get to enjoy the most righteous desires of our heart and our life forever on the new heaven and the new earth, God tells us. Scripture promises us. You know, I'll use this metaphor. You know, I was doing this no-sugar diet for a while, and I I really hated it, by the way, but I was doing this no-sugar diet, and so, you know, I take my kids, and we go to the yogurt place, and I love to get yogurt, but now I can't have any, because what kind of, you know, have yogurt with no sugar, and I find one that says no sugar and no fat. Oh, that's great. Give me one of those little taster cups, and I'll just get a little taste. This will be great. No sugar. So I go, and I pour it in there, and I take it, and I go, what is this? This is just like some kind of chemical compound or something. Did somebody put crest in toothpaste in this thing? I mean, and I can't get this taste out of my mouth. For some of you, you may say, well, I'm a believer, but there's a bad taste in my mouth because of my health, because of those that I've lost, because of how much I've lost. Can I tell you, it's just like a sampling today. It feels overwhelming, I know, but there's going to be a day where we're going to stand before God, and he's going to welcome us into his kingdom for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no longer, we're just going to have to take the little cup. Today, our good moments, they're just those little taste cups, which sometimes get a little taste. It's a great day. The day we're married, the day we have our first child, the day we get a promotion, the day something great happens to us, and it's a taste, and it doesn't last. But one day, for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's like walking, it's a metaphor, okay? It's like walking into the yogurt shop, and instead of getting a little taste, I stick my head under the thing, I pull that knob, <laughs> and I soak it all in. That's the joy unspeakable that the Scripture talks about. For those who are in Christ Jesus, I ask you that question again. If you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you tell him? There's only one answer. God, I don't deserve it. I know I've not earned it. But I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. And by grace, I'm asking. Jesus said that he would cover me with his blood, with his righteousness. And the Father would say, come on in. Enjoy all that was prepared and meant for you to know the fullness of life you never dreamed.
How can we neglect such great salvation? I want to show you a story of our one of our ministers, Destin Garner, who's one of our pastors here. Many of you have tr- prayed for his daughter, Sanders, who just turned a year old and who went literally from death to life. From before she was born, we don't think she's going to make it. And then after she's born, we're only going to give you a number of weeks. And here's the story of a resurrection through the power of Christ. I understand the science behind heart transplant. To me, the miracle of Sanders' lives and uh, just the timing of it all. When we found out um, we were pregnant, we were super excited. You go and you find out, you know, it's 10 fingers, 10 toes, not four chambers in the heart. Sanders was born with PAIVS, pulmonary atresia, with intact ventricular septum. Sanders was born with one of the um, most acute diagnoses that we take care of at the Heart Center at Children's. The way we described it to Bryce, our two-year-old, we said that Sanders' heart's broken beyond repair and she needs a new one. And we were told by several doctors it'll be a miracle if she makes it to birth. So for us, kind of the first miracle of timing is just the day and age at which we're born. If she would have been born just a couple decades ago, I don't know that she would have survived to get the heart transplant. And even at Sanders' birth, uh, to me it was just a timing of miracle. Sanders was born two weeks early at 38 weeks. Um, my ob he said, Jamie, I, I don't know why, but I know that we need to deliver now. And we were induced, and Sanders had a lot of complications in addition to her heart condition, um, that had she not been delivered, before I thought it was ready, not in my timing, but in God's, that she probably would not have made it to 40 weeks. And then, you know, at a week old, we found out her heart isn't repairable. Um, that was not our timing. <laughs> that was not what we had planned. We finally get her to Children's Hospital, and uh, there it's just a, a battle. We were told um, three months would be really impressive if she can make it three months, but we're looking at six to nine months for a heart. And so we just said, okay, God, like, we can't do anything about that. This is you. Now, Sanders herself, she was very sick up until a couple days before um, she received it. There were times that our team was talking about whether or not she was healthy enough to even receive that gift. And five weeks on the list, we got the call that she's going to get a heart. Um, Yeah, five weeks. She was seven weeks and two days old when she got her heart. And even from that point, there's been a lot of ups and downs, things that we would rather not happen. A random typo error on a prescription medication happened and she wound up getting it at 10 times more dosage uh, than she was supposed to. When I walked in, um, it was obvious that she wasn't breathing right um, and she was probably very close to stopping breathing. It hurt her kidneys and her brain and her lungs and her heart. and it set her back significantly, but to hear the doctors say it was caught literally um, at the moment it needed to be caught for her to survive. Um, We have a great team around us and everybody worked very quickly and once we were able to get through them, she recovered miraculously quickly after that too and her kidneys got better and her lungs got better and I think it was like a week and we were right back to where we were. Um, 
ever since then, she's been able to, to finally come out of the, the hospital and get home, and then even the timing of uh, just miraculous improvement. I mean, we've gone back for so many EKGs and echoes, and uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I love going and hearing the doctors describe her heart as perfect. And uh, so just thankful for all that God has done. And my hope that anybody who you know, watches this video, anybody who sees Sanders in her life, is that they would realize that just like Sanders, that, that they need a new heart, and that there is new life in Christ. And, and uh, he gave that to her physically, but we all need that spiritually. There's a picture of the gospel right there. Sanders could not survive on her own. There's nothing she could do to earn it. There's nothing anybody could do to pay it or to buy it. There was only one. Someone else had to give their heart so that she might live. And then there had to be someone with the authority to bless that and to authorize that, to find that and provide that. And that was the only way that she would live. That's the only way that she would know life. That's a picture of the gospel. In our own essence, in our own hearts, we can't do it. It's impossible. We need God Almighty to transcend our world, to forgive us, and to apply the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is given to us. And when we put our faith and trust in Him and make that commitment to Jesus Christ, we are saved.